0: As we look at this section of the Bible, this letter from the Apostle Paul, you'll see two primary recurring themes throughout the book of Ephesians, and one of them is the unity of the church and how the church, when it is networked and working together, accomplishes great things. And the second one is the power of God. And you'll see it from verse 1 all the way to the last verse in chapter 6, how God's power is working in us, how God's power is changing and transforming and making a difference in our lives. And we're going to study this, and in the first few chapters in this together, we'll learn how Scripture teaches us to live out our relationship in the context of community. The biblical scholar John Stott describes it as this, in looking at the book of Ephesians, he says, we talk about personal salvation, personal redemption, which is all important because you must, I must make the individual personal decision to trust Christ, find our forgiveness, and find the new life that's available in Jesus. But the book of Ephesians reminds us that there is a corporate, that is a universal agreement amongst believers in Christ, there is a community redemption as well. We are a redeemed community. That's what makes us different than any other type of organization, There's so many great things you could be a part of, so many great causes you can be a part of, so many things that put you together with like-minded people. But the only group of people that is a redeemed community is the church of Jesus Christ. God forgave our individual sins, but God has also forgiven our corporate sins. Now, that doesn't mean somebody's not here this morning that doesn't know Jesus, and and that may not make a whole lot of sense because you've not made that personal decision yet. But the reality is, as we gather, as a group of believers, we individually know Jesus, we individually have been forgiven, we individually are looking forward to and anticipating heaven, but we are also a group whose sins have been forgiven, a group who has together in a relationship with Jesus. And we are a group of people who together have that relationship and look forward to spending eternity together. And that's part of what makes it so unique and so different when you participate in church life. We got home last Sunday um, after, after being here, worshiping, studying with all of you, and then going out to dinner and all the usual normal activities and routines, and we were just kind of reflecting, resting. Sunday afternoon, my wife looked over at me, and Carrie said, everybody was just so happy. Now, I'll be honest, happiness isn't necessarily our goal as a church, but it is a clear byproduct of knowing and interacting and being in a relationship with Jesus. And that becomes a synergistic experience when we're together as a congregation because that new freedom we found in Christ, that new peace we found in Christ comes together in a synergistic fashion that allows us to be in this moment. And it doesn't mean we don't have our other issues. It doesn't mean we don't have our griefs and our sorrows, our frustration, our te- our stress and tension. All of that's still real. But for one hour in this time of worship together, we have the opportunity to, in a sense, kind of leave that at the door, come together and know everybody in this room is struggling. Everybody in this room has brokenness. Everybody in this room has sin issues. Everybody in this room has tensions. Everybody in this room is struggling in some form or a fashion. Any number of individual diagnoses about that, we're all there. But in this one hour, we're together. We're praying for one another. We're singing together. The church is about the only organization other than professional baseball at the seventh inning that actually sings together. (laughs) And no offense against personal baseball, except I like Sunday afternoons the best because we pause in our stadium here in Houston and sing God Bless America. I don't, not all that big about the eyes of Texas. I mean, it's a great song when I moved here but some university hijacked it and turned it into something else than it really is. No, we sing together, not just because we don't have anything better to do this morning, but because our lives have been changed. I I have something worth singing about these days. There are a lot of songs out there that I can sing that aren't worth singing, and they're not worth singing in a group. But I have something worth singing about. I, you have this moment when we're together and happiness is a significant part of it because I know, I know that I am both simultaneously with all of us, a fellow struggler, one who struggles, and at the same time, a fellow victor, one who's victorious. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. That is the simplicity of Paul's message is each one of us, has the opportunity, and those who have taken that opportunity and accepted Jesus as our Savior have a new life, forgiven and eternal in nature, looking forward to being forever with God. Each one of us has the opportunity to do that in the context of community, in the context of a life connected with other people, not isolated or individualistic, but connected, and that when things are connected, they just work better. And we all have been given through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of Jesus' resurrection, the power to do this life. And sometimes I just need other people to help remind me that whatever I'm facing this week, I'm not facing it by myself. I am not alone. I have both my family, we like to call it, a Scripture calls us, family at church. And I have the presence of God, which empowers the family of God. And so, it makes sense that this is a morning to be able to charge. This is a morning to be able to, to just gain some insight and understanding of Scripture. A lot of our Bible study classes and our teachers have already done the heavy lifting on a lot of that, and they'll do the heavy lifting with you every week because they know your prayer requests and they know what you're going through. And I already talked to one of our members who's in the hospital this morning and he already told me. He said, pastor, I'm just gonna miss being with everybody. But he knows. He knew before I called him, but he definitely knows now because we prayed together on the phone. He knows that we're praying and that his Bible study is praying. He's a part of our church because of his Bible study. Corporate church didn't appeal to him initially, but through his Bible study, he has become more increasingly connected and the family is there. So it makes sense that if you go to Ephesians chapter one and you start looking at those first few verses, this whole first 14 verses is just simply what is technically called a doxology. It is a hymn. It is a chorus. It is a song of praise. The apostle Paul begins to write this letter to the church in Ephesus where he has friends, where he had great experiences, where he had some difficult times as well, and they were there with him. We are Before the Apostle Paul heads back to Jerusalem for his trial, the elders, the leaders of this congregation in Ephesus are the last ones with him in Acts chapter 20. They're crying with him. They're weeping with him. They're praying with him because they love one another, and as he begins like many of us would to say, hey, dear church, your dear friends, he burst out in this song of praise. Actually, verses three through 14 is one sentence. The Bible, the New Testament is originally written in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, where we've separated it up into phrases with periods and commas and all the other proper pronunciations for the English language, in the Greek language, This is not 14 verses, but it's one single sentence. That's why when the Apostle Paul preached, people fell asleep and fell out of windows. (laughs) One single sentence. And we're going to do it in about 15 minutes. And so he starts off Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. He's simply beginning to express the relationship. And in this particular section, verses one through three, he sets the tone for the gratitude to the faithful servants, to the faithful saints, excuse me, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus of Ephesus. That's just like us. We are faithful saints. We are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Now in each one of these sections, I'm going to kind of highlight one I want you to, if you write in your Bible or if you've got your U-Version app open and you go to the Bible page, you can simply press and scroll and highlight it there. The phrase I want you to notice as we talk about Christian gratitude and being in this together in a grateful fashion is that very last part of verse three, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. God has worked out and poured out on us all of his care, compassion, love, and grace. And our lives are literally, not jokingly, not in a cliche fashion, literally hashtag blessed. We are a blessed people. This is so much more significant than picking up my milkshake during peach milkshake season and having the clerk say, have a blessed day. I am having a a blessed life. Not because everything's perfect and without difficulty and without trouble, but because Jesus has become a part of my life and all my gratitude stems from everything that takes place as a result of knowing him. It is a blessed life. It's not just simply a better life. It's not simply a more rational life a more productive life. It is all, the Christian life is all of those things. But never lose track of the fact that it's such a huge blessing. God reached down to us individually. And then now we believe the power of God's spirit working has drawn us together as a group. We are in this blessing together. Starting in verse 4, when that one really long run on sentence begins to happen, he shows us we can be grateful because we're wanted. It's so important to feel wanted, to know that you're wanted. I spent 17 years in the inner city. And during that 17 years, I talked to, I couldn't tell you how many students, just like our students. Except their lives were so disrupted by the economy and the difficulties and the dysfunction of the inner city. And I couldn't tell you how many gang-related funerals I did as a pastor, as a chaplain, so to speak, to gangs in the inner city. And every single instant, every single person I talked to, every guy, every girl, and you could question them, why? Why are you a part of this gang? Why are you a part of such destruction? And not just the destruction they commit in terms of crime, but the destruction of an individual's life. And the answer was always the same. 17 years, I never heard a different answer other than I felt like I belonged. That's how deep the drive to be wanted is. We struggle with this. We struggle with it in our family relationships. We struggle with it in our business or corporate relationships. We want a place to belong. And Paul, as he starts to just spew out these words of praise, he says in verse four, for he chose us in him. It was his desire before the foundation of the world, Paul says in verse four, he chose us to be holy, to be blameless and love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one, which is a reference to Jesus and his salvation that he has enacted and worked in our lives. Before you ever contemplated, before I ever dreamed or thought of anything about Jesus' name, Jesus had already decided as God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had already decided they wanted to know me and they wanted me to know them. I was already there. Don't worry about all the details and go off the rails about all the predestination theories and all the other things like that. Grab the essential point that the New Testament is perfectly clear on and every school of thought can agree on. God desired to know us. And we are grateful to be wanted. When no one else in life wants us, God still wants us. Jesus gave the illustration that he will leave out 99 in good, secure care and go look for the one who is outcast and, and away and doesn't have shelter and doesn't have care and doesn't have love. Me, you, us, we're the one. He chose us. He adopted us. He lavished his grace on us that we might, as the Apostle John would write later in his letter, be called the children of God. We, we belong. We have a place to belong. We belong with Christ and in Christ, and we belong together as a group, as a community in Christ. I'm grateful to be wanted. Paul says, we're grateful to be acquitted. That's a kind of a difficult word because we typically think of it only in the case of crimes. But from the perspective of God's holiness that he desired, God wanted us to share his holiness. He wanted us to be holy. He made arrangements for that, both in the Old Testament before Christ and the anticipation of the Messiah. And now in the New Testament in Christ, he wants us to be with him in his holiness. He wants us to know the purity, the blessing, the security, all the things that come with being in a relationship with him, a holy God. But the problem is we made decisions and we made choices really early on to do things that were contrary to that. We have committed crimes. We are guilty as charged. When Paul says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that's that's not just me. I'm a really good example of it some days, but it's everybody else as well. Even the most perfect, the most wonderful person you know, guess what? There's sin. But that sin is redeemed, it is purchased, it is paid for. The penalty of that sin has been wiped out, removed, and you've been declared free and I've been declared free because of the love of God. He wants us, he wants us to be in relationship with us so he takes care of our problems. He takes care of our bad choices. He takes care of our sin and he brings us in relationship. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. We haven't been told we're just free. We've been told we are declared innocent. We are pardoned to a new life in Christ. And I love the hope of that. Because I don't know about you, but I have a tendency to play things over again and again and again. And especially if I'm about to do something important, I'm about to do something like come here on Sundays and teach, and there's always this haunting thing in the back of my mind, always. Yeah, well, you're going to talk to them about this, but are you going to admit the time you did this? You're going to address this issue, but are you going to acknowledge your struggles in that area. You're going to talk about this disregard for holiness, but are you going to talk about how you've disregarded holiness? I mean, it doesn't even matter. You don't even have to get specific down to it. It's just always there. It's it's always with us. You did this. You did this. You thought this. You believed this. You acted in this way. The list goes on and on and on and on. And if we're not careful, we get reminded over and over and over and over again. Satan is the worst and the most relentless prosecutor you will ever know, and his only desire actually isn't to prosecute you for some kind of redemption or change or or reformation down the line. He just wants to keep reminding you, you were charged of this, you're charged of this, you're you're charged of this. And Paul, in his letter to his friends, simply says, "In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood." Yes guilty on all counts, but yes, forgiven on all counts. The redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, not because we deserved it, not because we could afford it, not because we could accomplish it, but out of the riches of his grace that he has poured out on us. Take verse seven, take verse eight, write it on a business card, write it on a three by five card, stick it in your back pocket. And the next time you're thinking you can't do something because of some mistake you've made, pull it out and remind yourself and show it to Satan and say, look, Satan, I am forgiven. I am a child of God. You can keep reminding me how I disregarded that and how I walked against that, but I am a new person in Jesus. And that part of me is no longer alive because I have been buried with Christ. And I am raised to walk in newness of life. I am grateful to be acquitted. I am grateful to be pardoned. I am grateful to not only be free, but declared innocent. And much like being grateful to be wanted, I am grateful to be included What I really wanted to say is I'm grateful to be a beneficiary, but it didn't work with the points. So if you're following the points on the the Bible app, or if you're writing them down, it just didn't work. I mean, grateful to be wanted, grateful to be acquitted, grateful to be a beneficiary, it just didn't work. So it's grateful to be included, but I'm included as a beneficiary. Listen to verses nine through 12. I'm going to read it in its entirety. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to to his good pleasure that he proposed in Christ has a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ both things in heaven and things on earth in him we also have received an inheritance because we are predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. That's a long, complicated portion of Paul's extra long sentence, a few verses in our Bible. It's worth reading, it's worth meditating on. But the bottom line, the essential truth right here is this everything that is God's is planned according to Him to be ours. And everything that we are and everything that we can be according to His plan is His. So there are debates technically on the language. Is it God's inheritance for us or are we God's inheritance for him? But the bottom line is both, absolutely both. We are his, he is ours. And he's told us in advance, everything I have is yours. Everything. I mean, it's, it's an amazing thought to have that revealed. I remember the first time church ever received an inheritance. I was sitting in my office and I had received a certified letter sent by courier. I opened the letter and I started to read the letter. And there was a cover letter from a lawyer and there was included a copy of a will. I never knew the person. I didn't know anything about who they were, where they had come from, but I read the will and I read through it and I saw where the church was to receive a significant amount of money to be able to do ministry. I don't know if it was just timing or if he had the office bugged, but about 30 to 45 minutes after I got the letter from courier, I got a phone call from the lawyer. And he said, this is the church's. This person, in this case it was a lady, this lady has left this for your church. I'm in the process of processing it. I need you to sign some papers and do some things on behalf of the church. And then when you do that, we'll send you the check. You'll have it and and it's yours. It turned out to be a really cool story. I was able to track down some of her family and find out some of the stories. She had never married, but she had been in our youth group as a kid. And now in her old age, she had divided out her estate And because of the impact that that church had had on that lady when she was in their youth group, she wanted to give a gift to the church. It did two things. I was amazed to to, to understand that somebody had so long ago created an intentional plan to bless a church that they clearly were never coming back to at that point. (laughs) They weren't ever going to visit again. They weren't ever going to get updates. They weren't ever going to watch on live stream but they wanted to give to the church. I I was just amazed at that kind of love, that kind of consideration, and at the same time I was challenged, and I thought, wow, bad news for my own kids. What a great way to have been generous all of my life and to have tithed and given beyond a tithe, give beyond 10% always to every church I've been a part of and multiple ministries as well, and then to divide up everything I've saved if I don't get to spend it myself and give it to Christian ministry. So it challenged me to change up my estate and change up my will, change up my plans. But the truth is, at that moment when I got the letter, when I talked to the lawyer, I found out that the church had been included. And that's what happens here. Paul's telling us, he's, he's basically saying, hey, guess what? In case you haven't already figured out, already don't know it, everything God has, he's actually gonna give to you as his child. You're going to receive that. And everything you become... There's going to be a blessing and a legacy and a heritage and an inheritance to Him. We win both ways. So I'm grateful to be included. And then I love how Paul concludes by just simply saying, We're secure. In verse 13, he says, In Him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, that's when we hear about Jesus for the first time. When we hear the gospel, that is the good news of salvation, the ability that we can be forgiven, the ability to be in relationship with living God. When you believed our decision, that decision moment, we all have to make that decision moment. God had loved me long before I ever even acknowledged his existence, but there came a moment as I began to understand, I had to say, yes, I believe it doesn't matter what you say. You don't have to do a formula or a certain prayer. Just say it. Just say it right now. If you are one of those people that you've been doubting and you're not sure, just say it. Take the risk. Take the step. Say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. God will verify it. You'll see it. When you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, until the redemption of the possession, that's us, until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. That moment when we believed, God sealed our future. My favorite, our people have heard it dozens and dozens of times. Our team's gonna come up. We're gonna worship and acknowledge this security. My favorite is Jesus' own description that God takes us and holds us in his hand and will not let go I am grateful to be secure I don't have to worry about those previous sins because they've been forgiven and when I believed the Holy Spirit sealed that moment and said this one is ours and we're not facing that kind of judgment I'm not facing wrath that separates me from God I am facing accountability but I'm okay with that because God's working in me to help me be the person he wants me to be because he sealed me He said, this one's ours. This one belongs to me. This one's my child. So all the rest of the gratitude, grateful to be wanted, grateful to be included, grateful to be set free and acquitted, all of this comes together in this sense of just being grateful to be secure. This week has the potential to be the greatest week of your life. It has the potential to be the worst week of your life. Either way, either way, if you've trusted in Jesus, he's got you. You're his, and he's yours. And nothing that happens this week can change that. Because it's in his hands, not ours. You and I can't do anything to be good enough to be God's child. Well, I hate to break the news to you and I don't want to run your week, but we can't do anything now that we know Jesus to still be good enough and to hang out here it's because he loves us and he secures us Mm -hmm. and he holds us and because of that I can face whatever I've got to face tomorrow